0: Hello and welcome to episode 197. I'm your host, Wei Shen, and once again, I have Tony, our delightful editor-in-chief with me today. Hey, T, how's it going?
1: Episode 197 of what?
0: Of the Waters Waveland Podcast.
1: That's right. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're distracted, because I can hear you're in the office, I can hear the background noise there, so maybe a little distracted. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, yes, I'm in the office today, I just came into. um have some drinks with colleagues and, you know, to make sure that uh, they know that I'm still alive.
1: Get them back to normalcy. It's good, good thing to see.
0: Yep, yep. <laughs> so uh, apologies if you if you hear some uh, background noise, but we won't be chatting for too long. So as promised last week, we actually have a guest today. I spoke with uh, Benjamin Quinlan, the CEO and managing partner at Quinlan & Associates. Uh, but before we get to that interview, some big news.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So, if you know Tony, you know, he's been, he's been a lazy bastard and had many years to put us on Spotify, but never did.
1: <laughs> harsh, but, man, it's harsh.
0: It's
1: true, you'll be it's very true, happy but it's harsh. To know.
0: Yes, <laughs> you'll be very happy to know that I have personally taken this upon my own shoulders. And so, yep, that's right. We are now on Spotify. <laughs> well and done. you can find us at uh, Waters Wavelength, or you can click on the link provided. And also, we are on Apple Podcasts. So there you go.
1: However, you want to listen to us, we're available to you.
0: Yep. Anyway and every way.
1: <laughs> anyway and every way.
0: <laughs> Another piece of big news. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is like episode 197 is like the big news announcements. Yeah. So we have a sponsor this week, right, Tony?
1: Yes, we do. For the first time, you know, so this is exciting. You know, I think we're just kind of gearing up toward episode. You know, we're almost at 200. We had to make this thing more professional. Wei Shan gets us on Spotify. We do have a sponsor this week. Uh, we're uh, Smartstream. Uh, they, you guys probably know them already. They do everything from reconciliation, uh, cash and liquidity management, corporate actions, exception management, treasury confirmation trade processing, so much more. Uh we have a white paper from them on reconciliations that we will link to. Uh, if you dig this podcast, we hope that you'll give the white paper a read. And you know, let me tell you Shen that you know when Dan first started this thing 3 4 years ago, I don't know how long it's been. 4 years ago. <laughs> basically just subtract 197 from uh, the number of weeks basically. Um you know, he thought there was going to be a bunch of sponsorship rolling in here for this for this year podcast never happens so clearly we are hitting our stride now
0: clearly this podcast needed a woman's touch
1: (laughs) that is true (laughs) that is definitely true
0: (laughs) all right so we'll be back next week with another guest but for this week let's kick it over to ben have a good week bye Okay, so I have Benjamin Quinlan, CEO and Managing Partner at Quinlan & Associates with me today. Hey Ben, how are you doing?
2: Good, thank you, as well as anyone can do at times like this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a a weird time we live in, uh, don't we? Um, But I guess here in Hong Kong we are actually a lot uh, better off than other countries. We get the freedom to walk around outside.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's nice that the restrictions have eased up a bit. Obviously, now we need to deal with the next wave of civil unrest, but <laughs> so, so be it. Uh, Hong Kong's in for a, a funny time ahead. But uh, yeah, at least getting out of the Hong Kong apartments has been a, a nice welcome relief.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, you recently published a new report called uh, Beyond the Buzz, and I, I thought we could uh, talk about that here today. Um, and here at Waters Technology we actually we've been covering innovation for a long time now you know um, looking at uh, how banks and asset managers as well as solution providers you know have been have been doing that whether that is in experimenting with AI for certain workflows or using other technologies to improve efficiency and so on so maybe to start with you know um, yeah and you do point this out in your report as well innovation has been a buzzword for uh, a while and uh, and as a result of that, it has created some new roles at, the, at these banks and asset management firms. You know, um, maybe to start with, you know what, to you, um, what separates a good innovation hit um, from one that is uh, not so good?
2: I think really, I mean, in, in this day and age, everything, when you talk about innovation, people relate it much more towards digital innovation. Um, now, innovation is not just about being digital. There are ways to innovate, obviously, from a a process perspective. It's just about doing something better, right? That's the whole idea behind it. But I think in the digital age, you really need to have someone with a good balance of technology know-how, as well as good business and commercial acumen. And I think one of the things that we point out in our reports is the fact that Many of the digital or innovation leads being planted within financial services firms tend to come from similar cloths of, you know, large tech background, your Googles, your your Microsofts and so on, and all they could be a startup founder, right? And while they bring a, a good depth of expertise around tech, they usually don't understand the business very well or the commercial realities of the institution that they're trying to innovate for. So I think the commercial acumen is probably one of the most important things because at the end of the day, technology in our view, and it should be everyone's view, is it's really just an enabler, right? It, it allows you to, to do something better. It's there to help. Um, if you lead with tech, you're going to be basically creating uh, too many solutions that are chasing problems um, that don't necessarily exist. Um, As well as that, I think if you come from a tech background, you don't have good know-how of the business, then getting business buy-in can be extremely difficult. And if I speak to many people that work within financial institutions, there is a bit of a divide and and an eye roll sometimes with the differences of the way that the innovation leads or heads might be talking about uh new technology or the latest and greatest ideas versus the actual problems that the businesses need to solve and you know i've been to umpteen events where i sit down at an innovation lab and you know a bank might bring in a a robotics company or something and it's cool but it has nothing to do with the business which is why i think again it's it's striking the right balance between techno how and commercial acumen and understanding of the core business problems that need to be addressed. So really a good innovation head is one that finds that mix and and finds it quite well.
0: That, that makes a lot of sense because uh, actually uh, I guess sometime last year I did a, a piece looking at uh, the the new role of data translators and how uh, banks have been banks like uh, you know in the region like DBS are actually hiring more or training uh, data translators basically to sit in between like the data scientists and the business so because they found that you know data scientists on their own and the bis- on and the people on the business side or operational side they just can't they don't really understand each other because um, uh, yeah uh, I guess that the data scientists have a lot of like technical knowledge and stuff, but they don't really understand. They may not necessarily understand um, the real business problems.
2: Yeah. I mean, at at the end of the day, it's it's solving a a problem, right? That's what innovation is there to do. So if you're just throwing tech ideas around and it doesn't tie back towards uh, solving a problem, then w- what's the point? It's just all glitz and glam and marketing, and it looks cool, but at the end of the day, it's it's useless to the organisation that's looking at it.
0: Right, right. And and in your report, you actually mentioned, you know, companies like Kodak. Um, these are such old names, but like yeah, yeah. Kodak, Nokia, Blockbuster, BlackBerry, yeah. and MySpace. Wow. Um, you know, these these companies basically fell off the map after being, you know, so. Um, quite strong in the past, Mm. you know, um, can you think of some technology companies, uh, particularly servicing the capital market space that were once at the top, but, you know, ended up uh, closing or being acquired uh, for pennies on the dollar?
2: Well, I think it's less common. I don't necessarily think there's pennies on the dollar. I mean, maybe one of the cases that, you know, we, we could have referred to is looking at Uh, eBay, right? So they bought PayPal in 2002 uh, for about one and a half billion, and then Skype they bought in 2005 for about 2.6 billion, and their plan at the time was to integrate the, the two systems and enable Skype users to send funds to family and friends via PayPal. Um, but it eventually sold Skype, eBay sold Skype for about $1.9 billion in 2009, and then it spun off PayPal in 2015, so overall that idea didn't work. Um, so, you know, there's an example of, you know, three leading firms basically coming together, and ultimately the concept around what they intended to do just didn't materialize. Um, you know, more broadly, if you want to look at, uh, I'll call it more recent examples, Uh, just the blockchain space, right? So all the big projects like Ethereum, Ripple, Libra, I mean, they were all just touted to be the next big thing. But I mean, in reality, nothing too meaningful has been created so far. A lot of discussions, a lot of proof of concepts, a lot of ideas, but uh, in terms of, you know, commercial impact, a lot less so.
0: I guess the problem with that one, particularly, I mean, blockchain space, particularly, is uh, the scale, and um, and I guess implementing it at yeah implementing it at scale, which is difficult to do.
2: Indeed, yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. So uh, also, you write that uh, and you estimate that nearly two thirds of total spend, which is which you estimate to be about six hundred and seventy billion U.S. dollars by twenty twenty five. Will end up as money down the drain. You know that's going towards innovation. So uh, a problem that we often hear about is technical debt. And as as more services are moving to the cloud and being delivered at, via uh, software as a service model, technical debt is getting harder to manage. Is this something that you've seen and, as well? And And you know what are the main points when it comes to making investments uh, into innovation? knowing that a lot of this money will go down the drain and you know thus really need to, you know um, we, it really contributes to that technical debt.
2: Sure, sure. I mean, look, technical debt, just to go on the problem. so the two-thirds that we we estimate, you kind of break it down in a few parts. A huge amount of money is actually spent on marketing and promotion. I mean, if you look at every single financial services firm these days, they're really touting the fact that they're looking at the next greatest thing in AI, or they're leveraging certain parts of technology. Um, they they host these massive innovation days. They showcase a lot of startups. Um, this is vast amounts of money being spent on things that aren't necessarily yielding any results. It goes back to the point of the innovation lab as well. I've never seen an innovation lab that is small and not overdone. Um, a lot of money goes into these, you know, these front-end appearing innovative concepts, but the the reality is the process to kind of source and integrate the solutions out there through an open innovation is actually quite weak. And that brings to the point that you're mentioning around technical debt, right? So that's basically creating all these new things on top of existing systems uh, that might not be consistent or compatible with the underlying systems that the the firm has. And a lot of that is due to, you know, problems with legacy systems and technology at many other financial institutions. So it's, you know, a question, do you overhaul the whole thing, right? So, I think when it comes to the topic of technical debt, the real trade-off um, in our view is, I recall it, between the quality and, uh, or compatibility with existing systems um, and the time of delivery or implementation, right? So, in order to do that, companies really have to design and adopt new solutions very carefully to minimize that mismatch. Um, and then address technical debt when time allows so that can be tweaking codes or applications after the application is launched over time to ensure compatibility that's in our report where obviously you you stay agile you you ensure that you have that kind of process in place Um, and then you really need to just ensure that you conduct those ongoing reviews uh, to ensure the different components of the system are working smoothly together but in lieu of understanding how to integrate that, yes, you do get firms that are stuck with problems where systems are incompatible and they don't talk to each other. I think APIs have gone some way to redressing that problem, but still, if the underlying infrastructure layer is not compatible with the new technology you're bringing on board, that's just going to cause a lot more work for you down the road. So, yes, that is a problem that we see.
0: Mm, okay. And in terms of figuring out this compatibility, you know, like uh, and. I mean, just taking the example of banks, they ha- they come with like uh, decades-old um, platforms, you know, and um, and reworking those or replacing those is is a a huge task and almost to the point that it shouldn't be done. Maybe what should be done instead is to layer on top of it, maybe find a workaround of how to, um, I guess, in some way turn that into something new and not legacy. Yeah. Um, but you know how how much of uh, how much time and effort should be spent into you know looking at how to do that and um, figuring out um, you know what should be what should be put in place to I mean just looking at the legacy platforms as an example mm. you know what should be put in place to to uh, address those.
2: Well, I think I think the the broader question here is most institutions don't look at digital innovation very holistically, right? So like a lot of businesses are siloed and need to address specific parts of their customer journey or their value chain or their middle office processing, whatever it might be. Uh, And as a result, they tend to adopt technology that's specific to what they want to achieve without really looking at how that fits in the broader infrastructure or data architecture of an organization as a whole. Um, I think when you go to the core roots of doing digital strategy well, um, it really is about assessing the longer-term cost-benefit trade-off of replacing something like your core banking infrastructure um, with this patchwork approach. And I agree, patchwork approach is obviously something that's more rapid to do and build new systems on top of, but if the core foundation of what you're trying to do ultimately will (laughs) will be your Achilles heel, then that needs to be carefully considered because at the end of it, you're gonna to need to revamp the whole thing, right? So how do you make those trade-offs? It's just very careful. I would call it strategic and business planning to really cost out and work out just how many resources are gonna be needed uh, to develop the ultimate end-state architecture that you're you're after. And whether that's done through a complete overhaul or patchwork is, is um, Is something that banks need to figure out at the board level not at a BU level um, when they start doing it of their own accord because when you do it at a BU level obviously you're starting to make investments and things there are some costs and obviously you have a vested interest to see something continue to go through and work Um, and then when you start to take a step back and have a look at how that sits in the broader ecosystem and you realize that the jigsaw pieces don't fit then you've got a problem. So that's why when we talk about digital innovation, you really need board level engagement and strategy, and for the board to work very closely with the business to really understand the full picture of the bank's target end-state digital infrastructure, not just what it needs to do as quick fixes right now. Um, When you get to understand that, then you can make better decisions around the economics of making smaller changes and adaptations. Uh, to larger overhauls of, of your whole digital um, proposition. Mm,
0: okay, I mean that makes a lot of sense. As in getting uh, having, uh, I guess I guess the message um, very well stated in at the board level. But also there there is a problem of like red, red tape, right? And going through that. And how does how does that actually play into, you know, uh, the money that invest. The the money that firms or, or I guess separate functions in, in a business, you know, want to uh, spend on like, let's say experimenting with the uh, with, for example, artificial intelligence, um, mm. which may or may not, you know, lead to any returns at all.
2: Yeah, I think one of the challenges with most institutions and large corporates in particular, is that many of the investments they make need to clear certain hurdle rates. So. You know, if you want to enter a new market or develop a new product or, or or whatever it might be, you need to ensure that whatever investment you're putting in it will achieve a certain ROI or payback period that's in line with the organization's broader financial targets and policies. I think when it comes to innovation, there's so much experimentation that goes on and inevitably a need to fail that many of these hurdle rates just won't be met. Right. Mm-hmm. So how do you treat that? budget as a separate pool of capital to something that sits, you know, adjacent but but not connected with your core business PL, right? Because obviously you you can't integrate that side of the finances as you would your daily business operations. That's the whole point of innovation. And and the red tape there is immense. I think the natural challenge with many organizations is the fact that Many of the executives don't have KPIs tied to innovation as a whole, not at all. And if you look at the standard executive tenure, you're probably looking at two, three, maybe up to five years before that executive moves on. If your objectives are to achieve quarterly revenue targets, which tie into the bonus performance of your business and you as an individual, why would you dedicate so much of your time to investing in ideas that may not yield an immediate payback. That will chew up your PNL and your budget, and ultimately, um, you know, <laughs> by the time it actually yields some results, you probably will have left already, right? So, right. I think again, the incentive structure and the, the, everything that sits behind innovation right now is is not done very well, in my view, and you can't think about it within the kind of same PL and and budget pot. As you would your normal business operation. So it's it's a major challenge. And most organizations, if I just say the word incentives, no one really has an incentive to innovate. As I as we say in the report, that function has effectively been outsourced to an innovation lab. So, you know, they're the ones tasked with going through and, and making these decisions. And again, when you have a lab that's disconnected from the business how are you ever going to solve business problems in the most meaningful way so I, I you know we we laid out quite a few problems associated with the current model of how innovation is done and and definitely red tape and and the incentive structures are very poorly designed to make it happen in a meaningful way
0: mm, okay and i guess looking at the at the use of uh, cloud you know where we're starting to see many partnerships with you know the big cloud providers um, in partnerships like between BlackRock and Azure, your Charles River and as your Broadridge and IBM and and so on, you know and uh, you know GCP has been used a lot by the 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 quants. So you know there seems to be kind of like an arms race here. So where where do you see it going, and and also what would it mean for cloud providers out here in Asia like um, Alibaba Cloud?
2: Yeah, yeah I, look, I I think the movement to cloud is kind of a natural next evolution of financial services as, as a whole. I mean, obviously, you enable a lot more processing power and the ability to digitalize at a much more rapid pace um, and cheaper data storage. I mean, there's, there's quite a few list of criteria that I can rattle off for why cloud. Um, I think one of the challenges that, you know, the the industry has been having was really around uh, data protection and the need to, you know, keep some of your um, information on premises, particularly sensitive client data, and how that information would be managed by cloud providers. Um, as well, not just that. I mean, I think one of the things that is very important is cloud providers tend to have much more, um, much higher security thresholds, I would call it, and uh, and cybersecurity protections than your average bank. Uh, but I think when it comes to regulatory enforcement, the ability to retrieve that information from a third-party provider in a very effective, fast, and efficient manner um, is something that you know made made regulators kind of need to understand that space a bit more. So, but but I think the overall proposition of cloud is is definitely there, and it, it's quite obvious that many of the institutions are looking to to move that way. As for, I guess, Asia and China, I generally think most Chinese financial institutions are gonna be turning to China-based cloud service providers as they go through their digital transformation exercise. Um, And I think as well for the foreign financial institutions, they would need to implement their cloud solutions in China. Um, In particular, uh, any market with data localization regulations of which China is one. Right. So but that also might result in the business opportunities specifically for China based cloud service providers. Right. So I think overall you have, you know, providers, uh, some of the international ones, like AWS, they have a presence in China, um, you know, an office in uh, Beijing and uh, Ningxia, I I believe. But, you know, they, they by comparison to other markets, their market share is actually quite low. So, you know, it is a different beast when you're operating in china particularly around uh data privacy data access uh and data storage right the localization requirements and i would call it the trust around the the data provider or the cloud providers is not i would say on par as what you would see is uh in the west
0: yeah so what do you think this means for Alibaba Cloud would would you do you see them being able to uh, compete in the foreign arena along with the likes of Azure AWS and so
2: on uh in short no uh, i think overall that the chinese cloud providers just given sensitivities around data and obviously you've got a geopolitical backdrop which makes this a lot more contentious i just don't think the Chinese cloud providers. Anything where it comes to storing data through a Chinese uh, server or a Chinese corporate will be something that will pick up critical mass relative to foreign competitors that would have different data privacy restrictions in place and things that I think the international community, particularly in financial services, would trust more. So I I do think it'll be a, a challenging road for them to compete offshore, but I do think they would absolutely dominate the local uh, Chinese market relative to foreign players. Um,
0: would would you say just uh, in China or in the region?
2: Uh, I would say more in China, just mainland China. I think the rest of the region would share probably similar concerns. Maybe other uh, you know other regions of ASEAN might be we're more willing to pick up um, you know the service, provided that they compete on cost, right? Where price sensitivities are more. Uh, I, I guess more front and center, but overall, I think the the issues around data privacy at the moment and just the regulatory environment that is evolving around it, you know, with GDPR and now Hong Kong looking at data privacy, uh, reviving the data privacy ordinance, there's a lot of things going into uh, this discussion that means cybersecurity uh, and data privacy is absolutely of primary concern to any organization dealing with sensitive client information. And I think that given the fines that you're going to face, if you get this wrong, uh, people would be prepared to pay a premium to see that this is done in the right way.
0: Okay. And and earlier you, you mentioned, you know, that uh, the creation of like innovation labs, you know, has been quite heavily, uh, it's more so done on a marketing and like a promotion kind of uh, uh, play, you know. Um, But the thing is, a lot of banks have also gone down this path. Do you do you think that they are not being strategic enough with these innovation and incubation labs that they're setting up?
2: I think they've been a big waste of money, a lot of them. I think some of them have done okay, right? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that all of them have failed, but I think the problem with the innovation lab is sometimes the reach is too broad. So what's the remit of the lab to be innovative? I mean that that's just That's just a bit stupid in my view. It doesn't make any sense, right? The firms that have done this better are ones that have focused on defined, I would call it uh, business verticals or product horizontals or specific themes. So if you set up, let's say a data lab, like a big data lab, something focused on how to utilize source, uh, analyze data in a much more effective way, then you are designing um, a process around something that is focused on one part of the business that can ultimately add value across the entire business if you leave the remit as innovation which can touch on pretty much every aspect of the digital ecosystem then yes you will get the ability to look broad and wide but you're not going to be focused in the way that you uh, you conduct your your sourcing and and integrate potential solutions out there into the lab. You've got to understand there are so many tech companies out there, right? So how on earth are you going to as a lab work out? Well, which ones do I go and have a chat to from an open innovation perspective uh, and engage them with uh, the firm that I work with? That's that's extremely difficult. It's it's just too much of a mammoth task. So, I mean, a lot of the labs, they'll let's say, engage with corporate accelerators. Now, there are some corporate accelerators that actually Go through the process quite well because they will ideate and work out what problems the company is trying to solve, and then based on this, they will then go through and source the relevant startups for that firm. But I've been to plenty of corporate accelerators where it's just a mishmash, mishmash of all these random startups talking about completely different things, um, and I'm kind of sitting there going, "What am I? What am I doing here? You know, is, is there a point?" To this event is there a point to the accelerator is it just talking about marketing and promoting the start- startup ecosystem if it's purely designers marketing spend hats off to you great job but if you're actually trying to solve a problem it is the worst idea i've ever seen so i think i think this is a major issue with the labs and i think that you cannot create a siloed function run by tech led people that don't understand the business. If you continue to do that, you will continue to flush money down the toilet. And that's what I see many of the large incumbents doing. So that in my view has to change.
0: Do you have any examples of who in particular have done this well?
2: Well, we draw an example of uh, BlackRock in our report, um, and we talk about some of the initiatives that they've been looking at. And again, like their data lab, right? That's specifically designed to look at how they analyze big data, alternative data in particular, so other sources of market uh, moving uh, messaging or, or information out there that could potentially enhance their overall investment thesis. I think this kind of an approach where your innovation efforts are more focused, will inevitably just yield a much more um, beneficial result for the organization. Whereas opposed to you know this very scattered you know, catch-all, kind of we're doing everything, it, it doesn't work. So yeah, there are, like an example like BlackRock would be among the firms that are doing it better, whether it's a true success story. I mean, you can always find holes in, in, in every single model but I think relative to many of the other financial institutions out there, uh, it's done a very good job. Mm.
0: So, you know, maybe just looking at when, when when companies or when when banks and asset managers say that they're innovating, you know, like how, how cynical should we actually be?
2: Um, well, if you read the report beyond the buzz and you looked at the title, <laughs> then you would know it's fairly cynical. Um, look, I think, I think that, you know, I, I've had enough meetings in my career to sit down with people that will ask me to come into their office and say, this is our problem. Um, you know, do you know good technology solutions out there uh, that can just solve this? And I can promise you 95% of the time, it's not a technology problem. It's a process problem. It's, you know, there's a basic problem basic things that can be fixed by changes in behavior Um, and it's not actually related to an issue with tech it's in in, it's an issue with people right it's an issue with the way they conduct their tasks uh what they're accountable for doing i mean you can go through and talk about you know one of the things that just used to just drive me up the wall was everyone commenting about let's say their crm system like i'll just go back to something basic right a CRM tool to manage your, your sales processes and and make sure that your, um, your coverage people are speaking to the right clients at the right time and, and everyone's aware of what's going on and how to track your pipeline and pick up cross-sell opportunities. And, you know, I've had institutions say, you know, our CRM doesn't work. And then I'll look at the way that their salespeople engage with this kind of software, you know, and you can go into core records and see like, people writing stuff down like met John for coffee, had lunch with Sarah. And I'm thinking, well, your data input process is rubbish, right? Like you are literally driving a garbage in, garbage out approach. It's not your actual system. It's what you're asking people to put in. And I think a lot of this as well, you you look at you know the way that many institutions do things. It's like this obsession with free text fields Um, it's just like the number one basic kind of protocol around designing, um, you know, tools where you can actually analyze and use the information. If everything is open to a free text field and not fixed cell formats, even if you just want to use something as basic as Excel. Um, you, you're left with hundreds of different inputs or thousands or tens of thousands, which uh, someone then needs to analyze through a sheet of all these words, and you can't make heads or tails of it. And if you do want to make the heads or tails of it, it's going to take you days, if not weeks, to work out what all of this means. So I, I think that the important thing around, you know, the way that banks do things is usually, in, in financial services institutions, is usually it's around the way that people think about process design and if you're designing your processes poorly and people are not accountable, especially in something like data for, you know, data governance standards of of quality inputs and ensuring that, um, you know, if you have a meeting that you you log that meeting and whatever happened that night and there's an actual so what or an outcome to it, then you're just getting people to fill things out for the sake of filling things out, right? So, Mm Yes, I do believe many institutions have a really garbage diagnostics process. They go through, they throw tech at a problem and, you know, I can assure you 95 plus percent of the time if I just sat down with a pen and paper, spoke to a few people, I could solve that problem without the need for tech. I could solve 80 to 90% of that problem and then yes, you could make the problem more Stream or you could streamline the the solution or whatever through tech afterwards. But I think the diagnostics is where so many firms get it wrong, and that's what the innovation lab concept or current innovation efforts are not doing. They're not getting to the heart of the problem. They're just throwing you know funky and new ideas at um, at things that might spice up the business, and that that doesn't work. Mm.
0: Okay. Well, when, when looking at the fintech space, you know, where do you see the, where, where is the hype around innovation exceeding the returns? You know, uh, some would say blockchain, others might say machine learning or RPA or general digitization, you know, but because they are rarely targeted projects, you know, and have a lot of, and have a lot of sprawl, you know, for you, where is the, where is the bullshit, you know, the greatest when it comes to innovation in the capital markets?
2: <laughs> uh well look i i personally believe um that blockchain has the highest amount of bs in capital markets right and just because so many investments have been made and really there's no real viable product or service that's actually been created within financial services that works or that has a considerable amount of traction yes the potential is there we can talk about this into the cows come home, but it, it gets boring. You have to get to the point where yes, we're beyond the the sandboxes and hand holding. Like, I think we've done this enough. If I if I have to go to one more presentation where someone is talking about what is AI, I will shoot myself in the head because it, it's basically saying, okay, let's get beyond the education process and let's work out what you can actually apply to your business that's going to make sense in a way that you can commercialize and scale, right? And not just test around with, and then ultimately, you know, you you don't get people using the solution or, or, or get them invested in their mindsets to approach it, which is why, you know, the biggest problem that we keep calling out in the report is culture. I mean, it doesn't matter what service area or digital solution segment you're, talking about, whether it's RPA, whether it's chatbots, doesn't matter. It's really within the culture of the firm, right? So if innovation does not lie within a core focus or DNA of a company, there will be BS regardless of uh, of the operations that the firm is involved in, or the specific area of technology that they're looking at. Um, And we've seen this so many times with companies, both large and small, just touting their digital transformation and innovation efforts. But the reality is they still rely on very archaic manual processes to get a lot of things done. So, you know, it's not necessarily about the tech. I think, yes, if we had to call out one aspect of the ecosystem, yes, it would be blockchain. But I think overall, it really boils down to culture of the organization. And uh, unless you fix that, then forget it. It just doesn't work.
0: Okay. Well, also, you, you note in the, in the report that so many innovative companies struggle to scale in capital markets. You know, so when, when it comes to selling to investment banks, asset managers and hedge funds, what are the greatest challenges, you know, as these three types of different firms have different needs and requirements?
2: Um, okay, well, I mean, one of the hardest things I mentioned earlier on in this chat was around the ROI proposition, right? being able to go in there and i think many firms go and say yada 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 this is what we do this is our solution isn't it cool and for a bank or financial institution especially given the the headwinds around regulation and 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 all of the cost constraints that they're being faced with um it it throws a spanner in the works in terms of how the companies need to actually frame their narrative so instead of going in saying this is our cool tech solution, and this is the price tag, it's being able to deliver a compelling proposition to say, this is our value add, and this is going to be your return on investment. If you utilize our solution, but doing it in a way that, you know, institutions can actually buy into, I think the other part of the problem that I mentioned before is, you know, that ROI equation is not necessarily so clear cut. When you're dealing with more innovative technologies it's not like buying a um you know a zoom subscription that you have to do right to get people Mm. on board so they can start to communicate everything else becomes a bit more speculative but you know beyond that and it goes down to bureaucracy now red tape culture you need to develop a very big supportive coalition of people that ultimately want to adopt your technology and buy into it in order for it to go through the relevant checks and balances. I mean, even the the vendor due diligence exercise for many institutions is just far too onerous for many startups to to cross as a hurdle. And then even if you do go through some of that process, you've got everyone with vested interests having different uh, you know, seats at the table with different opinions about whether they want this technology in. Now, you can obviously imagine the conflicts that face Uh, institutions when, let's say, you have a particular solution or tool that can wipe out half of the roles within a a bank's middle office or, you know, a quarter of a compliance function that are doing more manual or process-driven tasks or, you know, checks and balances, whatever it might be, things that can be readily automated. Imagine how much buy-in you're going to get from people whose jobs are going to be replaced by the very technology that's designed to enhance that part of the bank service proposition. So, you know, it, it, it becomes a political infight, uh, that happens at many organizations when it comes to tech adoption. And, and I think a lot of that as well is revolving around changing in habits, the hardest thing for anyone, whether it's in your personal life or in business is to change, right? Even myself, it's hard for me to just change my habits overnight. So, you know, when people see that things are gonna fundamentally upend the way they have been doing things, it naturally creates, I would say, a degree of uneasiness or caution within them around just, you know, raising your hand and saying, Let's do it. So, you know, I, I do see this as one of the main challenges, the fact that you have to build this very large supportive coalition of people who unanimously want to take your solution on board. Even if you go to a tech team. You can imagine the conflicts there between the buy versus build versus partner solution, right? Do we acquire an external solution? Well, what if a CTO feels like, well, this might kind of say that I'm not innovating if I I go with the solution, right? So, no, we can develop it internally. There are so many conflicts that exist to get this done smoothly, which is why the incentive structures need to be built around it. The governance structures need to be built around it. There's a lot of things that need to support innovation as a process. And I think most organizations have not done that. It's this innovation lab and saying, good luck, find us some cool stuff and we might implement it. And I think, you know, yes, there have been some success cases, but just given how much money has been spent and how much time uh, institutions have been looking at this, it's sad to see just how how little progress they've made in terms of their digital transformation and really COVID-19 and the fact that we've entered this kind of quasi new normal of everything being online, this webcast obviously being one of the prime examples of the fact that things are migrating online um, has just, you know, thrown institutions into a situation where they can no longer experiment. They need to take action and do it now uh, and that's not just to differentiate that's just to remain i would call it economically viable so it's a very important i would call it um you know uh, pivot point uh, in in this digital innovation journey for many companies
0: yeah. okay well i guess my last question is you know during this uh, for the, the the majority of this year you know we've spent a lot of time being cooped up at home uh, although we are In Hong Kong, I guess we are very free to walk around outside and uh, uh, do what we want, really. But, you know, how how have you personally um, innovated? What changes have you made to, like, your daily life, whether it's, you know, learning a new skill or being more mindful, et cetera?
2: Um, I think think with what what we're doing is thinking about how to... You think about consulting in various prongs of discussion. One is obviously the need to pivot. So... You know, you can you can see our research and our thought leadership really making very bold. And I think anyone that knows me knows I don't keep my opinion like subtle and I'm never someone to say I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, That's that's not the way I am. You know, we generally take a position and take it very hard uh because you know that's what we believe and a lot of the time yeah it can maybe rub people up the wrong way but i think the important thing now is people are looking for clarity in an environment where there is very little so what we are trying to do as a firm is establish what this means for the road ahead in terms of the way that we produce our insights and share our thinking to our client base and to the broader financial services community um, I think it's also led us to be more innovative around what we focus on. I mean, for a long time, it, it is frustrating even as a consulting firm to be able to get across the line on certain projects with some of the large incumbents. All of the the barriers that I talk about regarding culture and vested interests and everything apply just as much as they do to consultants as they would a a, a tech firm, right? Um, In particular, consultants that aren't there to rubber stamp whatever you want to say. So, you know, our view is we're not here to give you a thumbs up. We're here to give you advice. Um, If you want a thumbs up, you can hire a marketing firm and they're very good at that. But our job is to really make you um, view your business in a very critical way, in ways that might make you feel uncomfortable, but in ways that we find, I would call it intellectually honest. And our view as well is it's not, we've had to make some pivots around the focus areas that we're looking at. And in the past, I would call it six months, we've done a lot more work in other industries, in particular in education. We've done a lot of work in the education space, um, as well as consumer retail as well. So there are new there are new industry segments that are opening up to us, and it's about staying nimble around the way that we think about client problems and, you know, deliver value to the best of our ability. So I think that's been very important in terms of the client facing side of things. Um, when it comes to operations, it, uh, you, you know, there, we closed the office after Chinese new year and it was closed for about a month. Then I reopened it and then there was another outbreak in Hong Kong. So then we closed it down again. And, given that kind of an environment where people are cooped up at home for a long time, it, one thing that's become very abundantly clear is that the psychological impact that this has on people is quite dramatic, especially in Hong Kong, where your apartment is the size of a small coffin. So when you're <laughs> when you're cooped up at home for that long uh, and working, it can have a toll on the way that you think. And it it can all be very depressing. I mean, you know, you turn on the news every day, it's negative, it's negative, negative, more people dying, more infections, can't travel. Um, you know, you can't really see your friends and go out to the same degree that you could before. Uh, a lot of activities, sports and, you know, gatherings and things that we want to do as human beings, as social creatures, you had to put on standby, right? And on standby for an indefinite amount of time. So I think from my position as a whole, it's trying to be as empathetic as possible to the fact that everyone is in this difficult mental boat, right? And we are doing our very best to empathize with um, the fact that moods are are not necessarily gonna be as consistent, that you can't necessarily gauge face-to-face how people might be feeling or what they're thinking. So, you know, it does require a bit more of a personal reach out and just making sure that your staff feel like they are listened to, they're heard, that their work is valued um, and that you're all, you know, still fundamentally doing the same thing, albeit under different circumstances. Um, and I think the other aspect with my business in particular, you know, there was a lot of job security issues going on, given that the economy has you know not been in the greatest position. So you know, the only thing that I could do was make a a guarantee to my staff this year that I would not be letting anyone go, um, as well as I wouldn't be cutting anyone's salary. And, you know, that's a commitment that I'm more than prepared to stick to, because I think at the end of it, you know, staff and employees are what makes a business, you know, you can't, whatever business you're in, if you don't have the right team or people there, and you're just, trying to do everything by yourself, you, you can't. So, you know, I value my team more than anything. And I think it's very important to keep them engaged and motivated um, and to not add an additional burden or worry to them as they're trying to just complete their job uh, and do the things they need to do to grow in their career. So, you know, I would call that more personally uh, pivoting and just being more receptive towards a, a very new climate um, whether you call that innovative or not, uh, I wouldn't call that our Zoom calls innovative or or <laughs> any of that. It's you know, uh, you know, consulting is just about the way you uh, you work with clients. It's it it needs to be innovative all the time, right? That's the very purpose of of your job. That you know, it's taught me a lot around uh, client engagement, this new this new normal, um, as well as managing my business as a whole. So. You know, and, and re-establishing the core importance of a team and having the right people around you uh, to think through you know, the next big challenge and how you're gonna grow the business even during very difficult times and, and do it together. So yeah, it's it's kind of a blessing in disguise. And you know, despite the challenges that we face, uh, the business has actually done very well and I'm extremely grateful for it.
0: Well, it's really, really, really good to hear actually. Um... Yeah, well, thanks again for coming on the podcast this week. It's really good to have you on.
2: It's been an, a pleasure. So thank you very much for having me. And uh, hopefully we get to touch base on another exciting, interesting topic sometime in the near future.
0: Yes, I'm sure we will. Thank ah. you very much, Ben.
2: Thank you, Weishan. Appreciate it.